This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The Republicans gathered, Tampa, against a backdrop of an oncoming hurricane. But as they say in the theater, the show must go on. It applies to the theater of politics, too. How do they do? And what does it portend for the rest of the campaign and the future of conventions? To get the answer, Belmar's back. We'll talk to the co-founder of polyoptics.com, my old pal Adam Belmar, who's now an advisor to the Romney campaign, about how the, how the stagecraft of Tampa went down and how it played with the TV audience. Then we'll go behind the scenes, literally, with Phil Alonji. He's the former NBC specials producer hired to put on the show in Tampa. What's it like for a, move, for a newsman to move into a different role, the theatrics rather than just reporting on them? But first, to my pal Adam Belmar, welcome back to Polyoptics. Where have you been? Joshua, I have been everywhere and I have been nowhere. Like a shadow, I have roamed the hustings of America, making sure that the polyoptics of the Romney campaign are just so. And I am pumped to be back on the air here on POTUS with you. I think we were last with you, Adam, end of May, early June. And then you told me that you had worked out a deal uh, with Boston uh, to do their polyoptics to bring our listeners back up to date with a guy who they who was at their at their satellite radio for about 55 episodes uh, tell us really about the path that you've taken since then well being a part of polyoptics and uh, and hosting this this show with you has always been uh, a great joy for me and it was kind of sad and you're right a bit abrupt uh, when I suddenly left the airwaves um, back in May uh, but I will tell you this being a part of a presidential campaign in an operational sense is a phenomenal high. It is just great to be in common cause with people uh, who are looking to elect the next president of the United States. I've been very honored to do that in working with friends who I had once worked with in the White House and others who are longtime supporters and loyalists of Governor Mitt Romney. Um, there have been, since the, the governor became the quote-unquote presumptive nominee, just hundreds of events, um, and of course, all leading up to this very week in Tampa, Florida, where Governor Romney became the uh, the, the nominee of the Republican Party for the uh, presidential election of 2012. And I will tell you, Joshua, um, the, the the imagery, the messaging, the construction of the visual reinforced brand experience of Romney and Believe in America is something that I've been deeply involved in. I've never made any uh, bones about the fact that I am a Republican, although, of course, as we have prosecuted uh, the study of polyoptics here on the show Polyoptics on Sirius XM 124, uh, we've done it in a very nonpartisan way. And I have to say, over the last few months, I have been the most avid listener of this broadcast, and you have done such an amazing job with amazing guests exploring the polyoptics of what's going on in our country today. What was, what's, what's easier for you, to get back into the partisanship of putting on a good show and creating the Believe in America message, trying to help... Governor Romney score visually every night, 
or was it the Adam Belmar that worked with me on polyoptics in which we, we tried to leave our partisanship at the door? Do you feel very comfortable back with this team and trying to push this message forward? Yeah, I really do. Because for me, and I think this is something that uh, listeners are going to have such a joy with today, as you talk to Phil Alonji a little bit later on in the program, um, this whole effort is a professional effort. Now, I am going to vote for Mitt Romney. I believe in him as the candidate for our party. But my exercise in working on this campaign has been a purely professional one, not a partisan one. How can I say that? Well, you understand what I'm saying, Josh, because taking that message and trying to help visually reinforce it, to create the pictures that you find on the cover of local newspapers that wind their way from Getty to Corbis around the world and then ultimately end up in CNN documentaries by Gloria Borger called Romney Revealed and what we're about to see in the coming week for Obama with Jessica Yellen on CNN. The best of journalism, the best of visual communication is a cumulative effort. And you have to start early. Now, this campaign brought in some real pros. And I have to say, I'm very proud to be one of them, but there are so many others. It's the advanced guys. It's the guys like Josh King who get out there, who have a vision who communicate, and we've been talking about this for, God, almost 70 episodes here on POTUS, of what this could look like. Are there going to be 10,000, 15,000 people at a rally? Do we need something that's 25 feet behind the governor, that's 32 foot square, and is really going to read in that super duper wide shot? And then what about the tight shot? What about the one that the networks are going to see? Where's the message? How do we know where he is? From the coal miners, to the victory rallies in Ohio, to state houses, to bus tours, all of that has been my charge over the last number of weeks, Josh. So, so when you got into Boston in um, in June, give us sort of a before and after. I mean, they're very smart people. Stuart Stevens, uh, Kevin Madden, Eric Fernstrom, the Romney Communications uh, Directorate. Uh, but what were the what were the specific things that you brought them? The polyoptic touches that I would have brought or you bring uh, when suddenly the sort of bat signal goes out. We need a polyoptician here. Well, I mean, I was wonderfully lucky to have a reputation with folks like Stuart Stevens and Russ Schieffer and Ed Gillespie. So the kind of talents, not only visually and creatively, but the ability to work together with people under tight deadlines and understand advance, this was what they needed. And there aren't a lot of people on that list. So to get the call was one thing, but to become part of the operation, you know, they don't do anything lightly in Boston. This is a very disciplined campaign. They're very much on message, a message that means everything to the governor. Um, and I, I just say this, straight up to the top, Matt Rhodes, um, you know, the imprimatur was be a part of the team, make it happen. There's no amount of energy that we shouldn't expend to do the best job we can. And I immediately became a part of the advance operation at the campaign. And I can tell you there are amazing people there, you know, led by leadership that people know. Katie Packer Gage and Will Ritter uh, are leaders in that effort. And and I work for them. And, and, and you know, what I do is I'm, I'm on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week to lend a hand, to work with people downrange, as we say it in the business, and, and, and just be another asset to, to help the logistics along. What did Josh King do that, that Adam Belmar has been doing in 2012? 
really helping to fasten that vision down and make sure that it comes out everywhere we go, especially when we're abroad, which is something you guys did so well in the Clinton administration that we've explored. Uh, Governor Romney had some wonderful events uh, that, that he did abroad. As you recall, at the beginning of the Olympics, he was in London. Maybe that didn't go so well for him. I don't know. I thought he did a great job. But uh, but. But we were also in Warsaw, Poland. We were in uh, Jerusalem. And I know you guys talked about it, and I was really proud of the work we did there to support that message of freedom and democracy that the governor was carrying abroad. So, in you know, there's always this tension, whether you're, you're working with an advanced team in Warsaw or Jerusalem or Dallas, Texas, about whether you allow the team to uh, create and produce things locally uh, based on whatever standards and capabilities they have, or whether you ship stuff in from Boston or a place where you manufacture it and where you can really do quality control. So from Poland to things that have been happening in the U.S., what's the rhythm of the Romney campaign in terms of what Adam Belmar is designing and how it actually shows up on the stage and, and then through the lens to, to people at home? Well, people may be surprised to know uh, one thing, that the Romney campaign is not – penny wise and pound foolish. This is a campaign that's trying to run as lean as it can. So yeah, quality is a number one concern. Um, and we do try and be pretty centralized. We, you know, like many folks, even on the Democratic side, uh, the emphasis is on producing the highest quality, uh, you know, visual elements that we can and then moving them in. But of course, as you've just noted, if you've ever been involved in presidential advance or advancing a gubernatorial race, Things happen quickly, and so there's a lot of stuff going on at FedEx Kinko's and local printers. There's always a desire to try and, you know, put money into the local economy and, and have people help out, be it a light pole sign that you might see on a street or printing, um, you know, podium signs. The big stuff, the really big ones, Josh, those things are usually coming from some of the top printers in the, in, in the country if just because they're the only ones who can do it on a last right. minute basis and then get it shipped out and it can be expensive, but boy, is it well worth it. And, and I think even as I look at president Obama and uh, vice president Biden, uh, I really, I think see a level of commitment to visual communication in the Obama campaign. That's, that's really stepped up. I think they're really carrying that, uh, that banner better these days. Is that something you see too? Well, I realize that they are, uh, knowing that they're often taking Air Force One out uh, on purely political trips, uh, trips that probably don't call for the Blue Goose, the presidential lectern with mm -hmm. the presidential seal, and using instead their forward message uh, and discrete geographically localized podium messages in places See, like that's what I, I like that. I think they do a great job with that right now. And, um, and so I think we'll see more of that. And that's, that's, I think that's all to the good. Uh, what what you will see about Obama, I think, if they're following their 2008 recipe closely, is this incredible repetition uh, of the word forward, and it's gotten mm. some sort of uh, criticism from afar. But but it, it you know it's it's just it's this familiarity and this uh, mere exposure of Obama Biden forward one word. That's that's all you have to hear. And frankly. If you think about the convention and some of the nostalgia that was raised um, in Tampa with the Republicans, you probably will see a contrast next week to say uh, American history is all well and good, but we are moving forward. 
Uh, I want to get to the convention in a second, but I, I do think that's sort of the Obama strategy. It was the Clinton strategy in 96 to an extent. Um, and, and it's, Adam, it doesn't take, it doesn't mean to go to a new city and, and make a big, have a, a brand new message or a lot of different words. You're going to see Obama. You're going to see the word forward. You're going to see Biden. You might see uh, variety on the on these podiums, but you're not going to see much more than that. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you on that. And one of the things that I'm going to be interested in looking at uh, as I see us come into Charlotte with the Democratic Convention, the president of the United States, the vice president, um, you know, the leadership of our country coming together, looking to reelect President Obama is whether the rhetoric and I, and I say that respectfully, not in a, in a bad way. I mean, we just heard a lot of political rhetoric coming out of uh, out of Tampa. Um, and I am, you know, rhetorically, I, I really love as an American uh, our political discourse, especially when it gets to sort of a, a fine point, as we see in the conventions. But is forward something that's being communicated beyond the visual? Is it something that's being woven into the context of the rhetoric that we hear? I don't know that it is at the moment, but I suspect it probably will be and, and even more so on display as we come out of Charlotte. Well, I think that's true, and I think what we haven't seen yet, you, you made mention of how the polyoptic things that you're doing for the Romney campaign are being woven into into sort of the media's mini documentaries. I think uh, you'll find what we haven't seen is uh, the sort of produced visual feast that, that Charlotte will present us, um, both the things that the Democrats themselves are producing and that the networks are taking this opportunity to sort of reintroduce President Obama. I think Chris Matthews has a big Obama uh, documentary coming up early next week to coincide with the convention. Let's just take a quick look back, Adam, the last two weeks. You know, I, I was uh, comp very complimentary about the way the Ryan uh, pick was rolled out, at least theatrically, uh, at the site of the USS Wisconsin in uh, Roanoke, Virginia, and pretty much the way that the the two weeks have gone prior to the convention. Can you break down uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday for us in Tampa, and trying to be polyoptically as objective as you can about the you know the good, the bad, and the ugly from the last three days? Yeah, let let, let me do that. Let me say that. Uh... As I mentioned earlier, Joshua is going to talk to Phil Alonji, who is uh, one of the most uh, well-respected television producers in America, um, and he ended up producing something um, in Tampa that I stand in awe of. Um, I know for people that a big stadium, if you will, an enclosed indoor stadium like the one that we had the convention on uh, in Tampa can feel a little bit cookie cutter. We've seen it before. You put the people in, you turn on the cameras and the lights, and, it, and it's a bit formulaic. Rush Schieffer, along with Phil Alonji in the execution and help from a cast of thousands who work really well together, um, looked to try and give us a visual bar that was higher than anything we'd seen before. How did they do that? Well, it was about seven to nine LED screens that were magnificently bright, that were framed in uh, wood as if they were picture frames or windows into a world, into somebody's living room. This was finished with uh, LED screens on the 
the roof, if you will, of the set, giving you a look into the sky and the clouds above. It really brought it home. And all of those screens were able to work independently, in conjunction. We saw, for a savvy television audience, a reversal or IMAG shot so you could see anywhere in the hall, uh, the tight shot of the speaker at the podium. And then we saw visual references and cues pictures, historical elements, bits of information that was constantly informing us as the speakers did their bit. So from a visual communications perspective, I felt like Russ's uh, vision for this was really well executed. It was done in warm wood tones. It was simple. It was not ornate. The hall itself as an experiential element, I thought, and watching all of this on C-SPAN, mind you, I did not watch anything on network television. I did not watch Fox. I did not watch MSNBC. I only experienced the convention, not in Tampa, but from Washington, D.C., and I did it on C-SPAN. And thank God for C-SPAN, because those wide shots let me see it in a way that I think you're going to say, Josh, was manifestly different than the way most Americans saw it. And that, I think, is where you might come down into what you would characterize as the ugly. So tell me if I'm wrong on that, and let's let's dig it into where you think we may have fallen down a bit. Well, I mean, I thought the set was, was really well done. Um, I thought that uh, uh, allowing these um, the sort of screens outside of the tight shot to show different vistas of America, uh, different pictures that were resonant with what the speaker was saying on stage all worked and these sometimes worked at them outside of the prime time hours and not just the 10 11 hour but the 8 to 11 hour i think it they almost got uh, risk averse from 8 to 11 and not using the screens as much from that wide shot that i was watching on c-span i do also think that um and i'll love to talk to phil about this because as an nbc veteran you know he comes from uh the whole the 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 network family where uh, you, if you're NBC, you're investing a lot of money to send a lot of talent down there and you want to give them airtime, but that takes away from the, the produced show and the, and the story that you're trying to tell if you are the Republican convention producers. And, you know, I think I, you and I talked about this earlier in the week. I think if, if you're just an interested viewer and you want to see the best that the Republicans are trying to put forward, don't watch NBC, but don't watch Fox News either. Because they're putting, just trying to put their talent on TV too. You gotta watch C-SPAN because that is the that's the the best recreation of what the Republicans are trying to say. If you can like it or you can not like it, but if you want to see what the Republicans are trying to say, don't watch Fox News, don't watch NBC, watch C-SPAN. Yeah, if you're listening to POTUS, Series 6M 124, and you're listening to Polyoptics, it's Josh King and Adam Belmar back together again. And I agree, not surprisingly, with everything that Joshua King just said, because it is a theatrical presentation. It was the best case for why Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan should be the next president and vice president. And you would expect nothing less. This was for everyone in America, but it was also for the people who were in the hall, for the faithful and to try and get a broader tent message out there. It wasn't done for ratings for network news folks. And Phil Alonji is, is, is the kind of guy who's the consummate professional. He was a newsman for many, many years, but before and after that, he's a professional. I don't know what so his let's... politics are. He came to do a job and by God, he did it well. 
so let's talk about three things that I don't think were, were very good. Uh, one is um, the I, I was in the audience in um, uh, 1988 when Michael Dukakis, the last governor of Massachusetts to be nominated uh, uh, for a major party for president, uh, was announced for his speech. And it was to the tune of Neil Diamond's um, Coming to America. And he walked from the back of the house uh, through a throng uh, up to stage. The same effort was undertaken with Romney last night, but the the modern realities of Secret Service are that they sort of created this 10 or 12 foot wide path down a red carpet. And it was almost like Governor Romney was looking for hands to shake rather than being mobbed. So you had Alonji's cameras backing up, allowing Governor Romney to come to him, but it looked like Romney was not sort of being encroached on the way a president is as he enters a joint session of Congress for the State of the Union or the way he might or the way a prize fighter might be as he comes into the ring. But almost like walking down a, an Academy Awards red carpet with security creating a wide berth for him. That was my first problem with it. The second thing was despite the $10 million spent on the screens themselves behind the stage, I did find that there was not enough attention paid to the actual very, very tight shot. And so sometimes if they were showing a ruffling American flag for the wide shot for the audience at home, that for the audience in the room, that created a, uh, a disconcerting visual at, uh, on the screen. There was sort of, it looked like jelly flowing behind the president's head, the, the, the speaker's head. Uh, whereas they, they could have really thought about tiny imagery that could have filled that tight shot just for what the head on camera was seeing. And the third, obviously, Adam, was the 15 lost minutes of Clint Eastwood uh, on Thursday night at the beginning of the show. So uh, address those three things because I, you know, I, I want Alonji to, to succeed. I want a good show to be put on, but I have to be critical in those areas. No, I appreciate uh, your eye on this. And as, a, as an academic discussion, you know, divorced from emotion, um, I, I really look forward to, to, to hitting these three. And so let me begin. Number one, I think that I appreciated the vision for the, uh, the, the, the approach to the stage by Governor Romney. I agree with you insofar as the execution didn't reach the vision. Um, it was evocative of the way a president comes into the well of the House of Representatives for a State of the Union or a joint address to Congress. Um, and there was something very presidential about that coming down that red carpet. And I would just say to you that uh, it did occur to me as I watched it live that the execution of that vision did not uh, completely deliver. Now, on point number two, um, I would disagree with you wholeheartedly. Um, I, I have, in 2008, really, really, really had that problem with what we were doing out in Minneapolis. And I said as much. I was behind the scenes. I was there with the same guys who did what we just uh, finished doing in Tampa. And uh, I've been in close communication with them. And uh, I was pushing a uh, attack that is very, very similar to the point that you made about some sort of micro communications, something that was much more defined. Now, I believe 
that what what you saw on television in the tight shop and the depth, especially on Thursday, was fantastic. It was alive. It wasn't dead. It did feel, especially with Governor Romney standing there at near a 35, 40 foot throw back from this uh, thrust. Of course, they changed the set on Thursday for the governor's uh, speech. And so he was much more forward, much more uh, into the audience. And that changed the dynamic of some of these uh, cut shots and some of the the shots down in the buffer zone. Um, I thought it worked well, Josh. I just thought that it worked well. I didn't think that the discrepancy between the tight shot and the wide shots, which certainly had more visual information in them, bothered me as a viewer, but I can respect the fact that they did for you. And on your third point, I would just say that, uh, and I I mean this honestly, I at this time have not had a chance to see Clint Eastwood. I had listened to it on C-SPAN radio, i.e. I was driving, and I haven't gone back to watch it. I know the headlines have been bad. I know some people thought that it, it was just incongruous and it didn't feel right. I don't have an opinion about it. I'm a big fan of Clint Eastwood's. I appreciate what I thought he was trying to do, and it certainly is a is sort of fresh element. I didn't expect to see Clint Eastwood at the Republican convention, let alone on a Thursday night. If it did, if it fell flat with some and it registered with others, that is the kind of risk-taking that is probably worth taking. And it's the risk-taking that perhaps, as you pointed out, from 8 to 10, you think they were more risk-averse. They certainly weren't risk-averse in bringing in Clint Eastwood. Certainly not, Adam. Uh, and, you know, I think... Um they tried something different uh and at the end of the day it was it was to me a lost 15 minutes but romney got his speech out the balloons fell on cue uh the networks were able to uh hold over onto 10 minutes of of local newscast at 10 o'clock or at 11 o'clock so uh you know no harm no foul i guess because uh the republicans got what they wanted to happen uh but if you if you were trying to hope for this for what the next day would show it would not be sort of okay strong speech by governor romney but whoa this eastwood thing you you just want a clean getaway a clean getaway adam i should mention on two brand new uh romney ryan planes what's your thought as these as the campaign begins its next phase as uh, both governor romney and representative ryan head i think first to louisiana to check on damage from hurricane isaac and then back onto the campaign trail yeah um, we've been working on, uh, on, on, on what some of these events are going to look like. Um, and I can tell you that, uh, getting these candidates, uh, up in the air, getting a bounce out of Tampa and putting them in airplanes, uh, and taking flight is really important. Um, and you know, it, it's, it's an interesting thing. We're in it. We're in a, We're in a weird time, uh, economically for our country, uh, more money being spent on a presidential campaign on both sides now than ever before, uh, this really, really tough fight in these battleground states, and yet they're going to try and be consistent uh, about what they've been saying and where they're going, and the planes are indicative of that. Um, and I think people are excited to know more about uh, Paul Ryan and see him on the trail and his ability to get around with his press corps on his airplane, I think is a good thing. Um, and I think on the day after the convention, we saw them out there uh, doing an event, standing in front of this Believe in America, Mitt Romney.com plane. Um, it is not Air Force One. We've said that for a very long time. 
Being the boss has its uh, advantages, and the President of the United States, Barack Obama, in my opinion, uh, still has some fantastic uh, opportunities out there to get reelected. Uh, I'm looking forward to what's going to be happening in Charlotte and watching that convention unfold. And of course, the trappings of the presidency, whether it's the Blue Goose, the plane, uh, Marine One, or, or even the Beast, or just the presidential bus tour, uh, it's starting to become something that people recognize is different from what Romney's doing, and there's a reason for it. Well, Adam Belmar, visual consultant to the Romney campaign, uh, my partner for so long on Polyoptics, co-founder of Polyoptics.com. Great to hear your voice on this show again, uh, and best of luck for the next, what, 10 weeks? Yeah, I'm hoping that you'll take me back here on POTUS when uh, this is all done, but I'll leave that to you, Joshua. Much love, and God bless everybody here at POTUS. Adam, best of luck down the road. Thanks, Josh. Now from Tampa, Florida, just moments after the balloons have landed, Phil Alonji, executive producer of the Republican National Convention. Phil, congratulations. Job well done. How do you feel now that it's over? Uh, obviously, there's a huge sense of relief. Uh, as you mentioned, Josh, I've done 15 conventions, but always as an NBC News producer and all. And this was a this was this was a different thing for me uh, to have that overall overall responsibility of putting together the Republican convention. It was a huge responsibility because you realize the impact. But uh, I'm 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 thrilled with how the team performed. I'm thrilled with how the vision came to be. And and I'm I'm just grateful that I can say the morning after that it's a job well done. It certainly is, Phil. And you know, a lot of other people, and you're going to be doing press all day. Uh, will focus on speakers and highs and lows. But you know, in polyoptics, we we look at the stagecraft, we look at the design, we look at the production. And if you'll indulge us, I just you know, I've been making notes all week long, watching your show, and curious about how this came to be, and and eventually how. Phil Longi went from an NBC News specials producer to a uh, to a professional for hire, this time by the RNC. I guess my first question, Phil, is when you took on this project, did you approach it as a professional or a partisan? Obviously, a partisan organization was asking you to do a job, but did you allow yourself to get into the message of what was going on? Negative. Uh, that's... Uh... I remain, I'm a journalist first, and the reason why I was asked by the Republicans to do this convention is many of the principals that were involved on the Committee on Arrangements, which is the group that oversees pulling the convention together, are folks that I've worked with in my long career, some of them dating back to 1984. And uh, what they wanted was an, a fresh approach to the convention, and they realized uh, that it is a news event. And why not go to a news producer who would understand that? So uh, I came in not as a partisan, but but as someone who believes that all political events are important and that it's extremely important to get the message out in the sense that voters should care about the issues and voters should learn about the candidates. And then that's the way I, I was looking at my role. I, I was just taking into account that we have various platforms now, and it's no longer just a TV or a radio show. It's a show that's on iPods. It's a show that's on iPads. It's a show that is, are on various apps. And, and what we were trying to do is just make things look fresh so as people were looking around that maybe they would stop. And, and I was hoping that if they did indeed stop, they'd stop and listen so that they learn something about the candidates so that they can indeed make their choice in November. Phil, you've covered royal weddings. Uh, you've planned coverage of 
Fidel Castro's funeral, whenever that may be. Uh, you've covered uh, space shuttle uh, takeoffs and landings. When you first went to the Tampa Bay Times Arena and looked at that as a blank canvas, what was the creative process that ultimately resulted in what I'll call the Frank Lloyd set? And what are the other sort of artists and artisans involved in putting that together? What I was looking to do for as we started working on the design, and I started working on this project, believe it or not, in March of 2011. And as we had the conversations moving forward, I've always thought that how cool would it be to just sort of, since the conventions are four days, and let's face it, many people say that they are dinosaurs and they're not needed, etc., but I was trying to think of ways of giving it a fresh approach. Well, you can't break down a set and, and reestablish every night, but with new technology, meaning LED screens, you're able to transform things and give things a fresh approach and a different look. So the early designs that we were coming up with had screens, but certainly nothing like the number of screens that we ended up with, because as we did indeed move forward and I was showing concepts, and they said, yeah, we like this, but give us, show us something different. What would you think? What, was it, what would you want to do? And that's when the design team and, my, uh, and a group of us got together, and we came down with the series of screens, and, and conceptually we wanted to make certain that we weren't just putting something out there that was perhaps too progressive and too modern because we wanted to respect the tradition of political conventions, which was very important. So in, in, in a conversation, one of our meetings, someone said, I get it, I get it, the Americana, and who better to represent Americana than Frank Lloyd Wright? So that's where the wood and, and, and the fragmented American flag look, and what a lot of people probably, I'm going to say even to this day, don't realize, even how we didn't want to be completely symmetrical, and if you right. notice, the thrust was not dead center. It was a little bit off to the side, just so that it would shake things up a little bit. And then, of course, when we had the frames, it was to be as if you were peering in, uh, so, and we had some frames that were left open. We had what we referred to as the canopy that was over the stage, and that was supposed to almost reflect the skylight issues so that people can feel like they were looking in. And uh, in total, all 13 screens performed just the way I wanted them to. I mean, the canopies to me, Phil, you remember my role at the White House was with the pool down in the buffer uh, very close in, and often the lenses are focused up to the speaker and basically into the Klieg lights. But it looks mm -hmm. like you've been able, you were able to avoid this problem and almost do message projection using the canopies. We, we, we see the canopies we use at different times. I and mean, a couple of my favorite graphics that we developed, uh, I'm not going to just say the clouds in the sky, but there was, there was a night when uh, we did the education last time when Jen Bush spoke. And, and if people were noticing, we were, it was, we were saying it almost like it was a, a chalkboard. And as he was going through his speech and he was using key words, we were able to uh, update the graphic and, and put the key words there. So it was the scratch pad that someone was taking notes, let's say, in a class. So there were little subtle elements from, from a design focus that, that we were able to do on this set that probably uh, no one would have thought of doing 10 years ago because the technology did not exist. I love that, Phil, and, and I watched it a couple times and was able to see the sort of wide shot often delivered more by C-SPAN than any of the other networks. Uh, it, 
did you have to um, do you have to almost prove the concept once before they would allow that sort of scratch pad effect to happen during a prime time address where it could actually uh, tell the story a little bit more effectively than just the tight shot on the speaker on the podium? It's it's let's let's face it. Everyone came in here not knowing what they what they were going to expect from the screens, and and I'm certain there there was a concern. Let's face it. I myself had concerns to make certain that we were able to to. Re, I was just speaking a short while ago with, with our EIC, our engineer in charge, and we were just chatting about it. And and the fact is is what we had to do is come up with pretty much for every major speech a new set backdrop for every night. So in theory, we probably had, I'm going to guess, somewhere in the area of 50 different designs that you would come up with. And, and given how the, the nature of this event, uh, we had to wait for speeches to come to us. Uh, we could develop things on themes and, and hopefully get stuff ready. But a lot of times we were a little we were a little bit behind the eight ball because of the fact that we didn't know specifically what was going to be said, so we had to develop graphics almost in a vacuum, but then respond as quickly as possible. And and I have to tell you, I'm I'm very proud of our design team on the graphics and video side because I think they perform beyond expectation. Phil, there's an old expression, uh, certainly in use when you started covering conventions, when I started working on conventions in 1988, gavel to gavel coverage, uh, at least uh, on public television, on C-SPAN, and often at least with, with your old network, NBC and ABC and CBS, a couple primetime hours, maybe three, and now it's one. And as you are, are trying to put on a a visual show, not just for the delegates in the room, but for an audience at home. You're dealing with elements like uh, pre prepackaged video segments, um, introducers, uh, and other things. And yet, when a network comes on after uh, primetime programming from eight to ten, you know Brian has to say a few words. He has to throw to Chuck and Andrea to establish that the talent is there. But they end up missing a lot of the elements that you've created and end up only kind of with a tight shot of what of the speech. Um, now, wearing both of your hats, the, the journalist and the ex-NBC newsman and the convention executive producer, do you think the viewer at home misses something with only one hour of primetime network coverage? Here's my answer on that. The people that are interested in what's going on here, they know where to go to find it. They go to cable, and, and, and one of the the blessings for NBC is the fact that they can go to MSNBC and watch it for as long as they'd like, and then at 10 o'clock switch over. But but we have to remember the the platforms that exist now. Josh, when you and I were doing these things together, they've multiplied beyond what any of us could have ever imagined. And the fact is is that how many people no longer even have Direct TV access or cable access, and they they just watch television on the internet or they watch what they need to see on the Internet, <clears throat> excuse me, or, or they put it up on their app. And, and local stations have live streaming. I know the local stations here, uh, for certain, were live streaming the convention, so people were able to get it at all times. 
So it's not just the prime time hour that the networks are covering that you need to focus on. You need to focus on all of the media that's here, the bloggers that are here, even even radio. Radio is still is still something that a lot of people like. They're in their cars. They're, it's captive. Let's face it, traffic's, traffic is pretty bad in a lot of the major markets. That's right. And I'm starting a lot of people as they're driving home may be interested in listening to the speeches. So my, my, my vision for this was to just come up with a plan that all platforms would, would find that there was an element of interest for them to be there. Because, again, uh, I don't mean to harp on it, but, but my main goal is really to get information out to the voters so that, indeed, the voters can, can make their choice and, and, and make it in a way where, where they've gotten enough information so that they'll learn about the candidates regardless of the party. Phil, as a NBC News specials producer, obviously one thing that would always cause you to pack your bag and get on a plane and plan uh, momentary coverage would be uh, an earthquake, a tornado, and of course a hurricane. Uh, if, if you've been planning this event for 18 months or so. Um, how much did the possibility of a Gulf Coast hurricane play into your planning and your contingency planning and then the fact that you actually had to change your schedule because of Hurricane Isaac? In terms of planning, it was always just something that was in the back of our, our mind. But we never, we never, quite frankly, other than from a safety and folks that were involved with that, uh, were very, very cognizant of, of a safety plan and to make certain that decisions would be made that would not only impact the people that live in the Tampa Bay area, but also the, the huge number of people that were going to be coming in to visit. So uh, from a production standpoint, I, I, because of the breaking news background that I have, I always sort of knew I, I had to anticipate how would I respond to things. And uh, we, we just plotted on as if the schedule was going to happen the way uh, the campaign and official proceedings were telling us it would. And, and then, of course, once uh, we knew that the weather was a situation and Sunday became, uh, it became apparent that Monday's session was in jeopardy, we just waited until, uh, as I said, official proceedings and, and the campaign, who, who indeed put the schedule of speakers together and all, uh, came back and said, this is what we're going to do. Now we just have to figure out how do we shoehorn in as much as we can for the three days that, that we have left for this event. And uh, I think part, part of the fact that we had some real pros, the team was comprised not only of news people, but people that work on, on major award shows like the Grammys and the Oscars, etc. So they're accustomed to working under the gun. And they've had situations as well where they've had to react to news events. Uh, they, we, we did it. We, I think now I, I never say things until after it's over, but I, 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 again, I'll just say I'm very proud of the team and what they've done. Phil, as a person looking at cutaway shots uh, on the various feeds, you know, the, increasingly it's tough to, to keep 15,000 people in line. Uh, a lot of people are catching up with old friends. They're chatting. Uh, they're taking pictures with their with their uh, smartphones. Uh, you don't have a you don't always have a perfectly either seated or standing or cheering attentive audience. What are the ways in which the executive producer, the director, and the other uh, team in the control room employ to sort of say now is a time to focus? Is it a combination of sound, lighting? What are the things that you can do to really get call some order to a convention floor? Well, we, we used a lot of videos in this production as well. 
there were a lot of videos that we were able to play. And and what you do is you try to keep them brief so you can do you indeed get the attention of the delegates and the guests that are in the hall. And in addition, you make certain that there is uh, – proper screening for everyone there. So in addition to the 13 screens, which comprise the main stage, we had two very large LEDs that flanked stage left, stage right, so people were able to watch that were sort of in perhaps partially blocked seats. Plus also we had for folks that were seated sort of behind uh, the podium itself, we had a, a very large projector. Uh, and then we had we took advantage of all the monitors around the forum itself so we kept we kept it moving so even if people did indeed want to run to the concession stand they'd still be able to monitor what was going on uh, at the convention and the last pro the last project that we set up was outside uh, there's a wall that's across from the main entrance of the Tampa Bay Times forum that you can project on and now certainly you can't do it during daylight hours but once it got dark uh, people that were even outside perhaps on the various patios that, that exist here, they were also able to monitor the convention as well. So as you take stock and think about your after-action report for uh, RNC 2012 and whether the, you do RNC 2016 or DNC 2016, uh, what are the things that you would do differently next time? Uh, this was a tremendous learning experience for me, Josh. I, I as, even though I was with NBC for 31 years and, and I thought knew a lot, which I, I'm not saying I don't, this has been an amazing experience because from the screen standpoint, I, I found out that, okay, it's great to have all of these screens, but it's not like when I had done events in the past where the mobile unit would just punch through and the screen would get the effect. We ended up reaching out first to a company called Control Freak uh, to help us control the screens, uh, specifically to drive the elements that would go in the various media that, media that we were using. And then we went a second step and we hired another company called Lightborn to help. And, and Lightborn is sort of like a post-production group as well. So they prepare a lot of the images. They can take the video packages we've prepared or as even sort of during some of the musical events that we had last night, as we call the eye candy that was happening. So I found out that, wow, screens can do this. But if you, if you hire companies that are as professional as Control Freak and have the experience they do, screens can do that. And if you really want to dig deeper, then you go to a company called Lightborn, and Lightborn will help put the whole element together. And then between our graphics designers, uh, and we use the group of folks that have worked on the, as I mentioned, the award shows, plus also the lead designer. It's a gentleman that's worked uh, for all of the major networks at one time or another, and uh, and he's an extremely creative individual and fast, and, and a lot of this stuff just came together because the team worked together. Together. And uh, the last part about that, the whole visualization that I thought was amazing is, of course, you don't want to tip your hand and play things in the hall. So we set up a room that we called our previs room, and we were actually able to recreate not only a direct shot, but also from various vantage points around the hall. So I'd see how the screens looked if you were sitting in section 216 or if you were sitting in section 112. So as a guy who's followed political stagecraft for so long, I, there were three things, I think, that, that as I watched all three nights, uh, I sort of sit, made in my little notebook and said, I wonder if Phil can figure out how to address these things in the future uh, and, and maybe get your take as you watch the show go on. Number one is 
as great as the set was and as versatile as it was for you, uh, is there any way, Phil, in the future to recognize that the reality is people like to give prepared speeches and read them from prompter? And you've got the back of the house prompter, which I think Ted Cruz used when, when he ditched his prompter for his talk. Mm -hmm. But um, is there a way that uh, the one disconcerting thing about a political stage set is the presence of those prompters, that if you go any way wide, you're going to see those panes of glass. Mm -hmm. Is there a, a convention in the future where you don't see the teleprompter? Yeah, that, that's a terrific question to ask, Josh, and, and I thought about it here because uh, there were a lot of challenges with the prompter and, and the lectern and the stage going up and down and, and what you want to do. And and we've talked about it. The first problem is the even though we put a monitor on the Senate camera stand so that people like Ted Cruz can see it and others, it's still something that I think that interferes with the process. The biggest problem you have on a political convention would be the sight lines. You don't want to block it for the delegates. You don't want to invite and block it for the guests. Because uh, as much as we know this is a, a, an event for television and, and, and all, it, it's also an event for the people that are in the hall. You have close to 20,000 people that were at this convention. And you want them to be able to see it because if you kill the energy in the hall, it's going that that'll come across as well on television. And if, quite frankly, if you're home and you feel like they're bored, why should I be sitting here watching it? So I, I would love for someone to come up with some way of us handling the prompter issue. And I'm not quite frankly sure how to do it. I know when we do general television shows and the prompter is hanging off the camera itself, and 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 most people don't even know that. Uh, I'm not certain how it would apply here, but. I'm certain there are people a lot smarter than me that are thinking about this as well who work on that end of the business, and I'll wait for them to come up with an idea. The second thing, Phil, is the tight shot. Uh, you know, the screens work beautifully in the medium and wide shots, and yet when you were in tight, sometimes if you were showing a flowing American flag or another kind of moving ba backdrop, there was the sort of sense of a jellified form moving behind the speaker's head. Was there thought to saying, look, if we can just isolate the few square feet behind a president's head from the exact head-on camera position, we can actually make some positive use of this. We can send either a verbal or a written message in tiny type that the that the rest of the room wouldn't see, but it would work perfectly for television. What's the thought about the tight shot as you looked at it over and over during the week? The, the one thing about the tight shot, and, and, and again, this, this is something, Josh, that we loved about with all of the toys that we had to play with. We were actually able to isolate what we call screen nine. Screen nine was a very large screen, and that was directly behind the principal speaking location. We were able to isolate that area. So in the other screens, graphics could be moving and the states could be going by. But in, green, in screen nine, we could either take that element out or freeze that element. And for different textures of the graphic design, we were able to do that. And, and honestly, there were sometimes we didn't have the time to even pre-screen graphics and we had to, we had to make changes on the fly not only for text but also for color because if we didn't know that x person was going to be wearing a red dress tonight and we had planned <laughs> the red background 
And I know for certain there was one instance last night, I'm not going to say it was red, but there was a color issue. And we and, and very gracefully, our director went to a different background just to help make certain that this person wasn't lost in the background. So we, we, we were ready to go on the fly. But uh, if you look at the Olympics this year, NBC, I thought, did a really good job with, with letters and, and things going by. And uh, you don't want to overcomplicate things. and You also don't want to distract. Uh, there were some people I know that I, I got notes that fell asleep. And when some of the graphics were moving behind people, they said, you're making me sick and you're making me this and that uh, by the motion. So we, we, we made sure we, we kept it to a level we, we thought was comfortable but it was still, again, a learning experience, and I'm certain we'll go back and, and adjust further if, if we do this again. The last thing, Phil, was more of sort of a, a, a choreography thing. You know, I, I my first convention was Atlanta 88. There was a great moment uh, when Governor Dukakis was introduced with the, the, the strains of Neil Diamond's Coming to America as he walked uh, to the stage from the back of the house. A similar effort was undertaken in uh, the final day of the Republican convention when uh, Clint Eastwood introduced uh, Mitt Romney and he walked in from the back of the house. And yet it seemed, Phil, like a uh, result of modern security measures that there was such a wide berth between the left and right side. Governor Romney was almost straining for hands to shake rather than having that effect of when the president walks into a joint session of Congress, hands reaching out to him and he can't shake enough. How did it feel looking at that shot as your guys were with the cameras were moving backward to catch this and it looked like almost too much space for Romney to walk down? Well, if you may, I just would like Make, if you don't mind, Josh, one quick correct, correct, correction. Clint Eastwood sure. did not intro the president. That was Marco Rubio. Right. I'm sorry. Thank you. Uh, no, it's okay. I just know you <laughs> want to get the facts straight. You're, you're absolutely uh, right. It's, you're right. Marco Rubio did it. And uh, so the Steadicam was waiting in the back. I'm never going to question Secret Service because I have too much respect for the job the men and women do of protecting the president. And, and I'm grateful to this day that, that the president is kept as safe as he is. And in this case, it's a presidential nominee. And, and we have to face realities that we live in this world. And uh, Secret Service wants to make certain that as the, their protectee is moving along, that they, ha they indeed can respond. Uh, so in terms of the aisle uh, being open, uh, I'm not going to question what they did. I appreciate the fact that they did indeed cooperate and that the governor was able to make his way down the aisle uh, comfortably. And, and, and I was fine with how it all came together. It was just an element that I wanted to do uh, from the beginning because I think it just adds something more to it. But from a practical sense, I also needed that time, Josh, just so you know, because we, as you know, we had two stages for uh, last night, and on stage, the upper stage, we had we needed time to grip off the That's lectern, right. the paddles, and everything, and that gave me the cover to do that because the slip stage that we were using to raise and lower the lectern was moved to the front stage at that point, so we had to manually take it off, and my hats are my my hats off to the crew because I hit them with this and I said, guys, I need this to happen and it's so fast and, and not only take everything out because in the lectern, not only did we have the cables for the microphones, but we also had cables for the lights and we had also cable for a little bit of HVAC to come up so that there's a little breeze. 
So, yeah. and then they have to plug the holes that that were in the stage, and we want to make certain that no one gets hurt. Uh, and and the crew did exactly what I needed, and and in an amazing amount of time, and and it all worked uh, beautifully. I held my breath for a little while, but once it was over, I I was breathing again. Just two things before we let you go, Phil. Uh, amazing show. I think it was over four, over three nights uh, truncated from four because of the realities of Hurricane Isaac. I did notice, as many others did, that I think the executive producer took one point of personal privilege, uh, but I think one that was entirely deserved and well-earned, and that was the role of your son, Philip Jr. Can you talk a little bit about what Phil did and, and how you feel about that? Well, it's nice of you to bring that up, Josh. My son Philip, who's an aspiring opera singer, was asked in 2008 uh, to sing the national anthem at the Republican convention. And uh, while I was at NBC, there was no conflict of interest. And, and, and when they asked him, I thought that was a great honor. And in fact, uh, Philip had also been scheduled uh, or seriously considered to sing for the Democratic convention as well in 08. Uh, but, but scheduling as well as the fact that I think an artist that was a little more recognizable came up and, and he was sort of bumped from the program, which which most certainly understand. Very early on in this process, people were asking me if my son would sing, and I felt uh, it's it's not something that, by the way, that the the, the role that I play uh, makes the choice. And, and I said, no, I, I don't think so. I don't being I'm in a different role this time, I don't want anyone to sort of say conflict and, and all. However, the campaign came to me a few weeks ago and said, why, why is it you don't want your son to sing? And I said, it's not that I don't want my son to sing, it's just I think it's a conflict. And they said, well, we would like your son to sing and we're going to ask him. So it pretty much came down from the Romney campaign themselves. And I personally considered it uh, an honor that he was asked at, to do this at a major political event. And he made me very proud, and uh, he has an amazing voice, and he fills the hall, and, and people were just blown away by it. So, But I appreciate you bringing it up, and thank you for acknowledging that. Phil, after working so long on this show, uh, you've, you've earned yourself a, a significant amount of time off, maybe cruise down the Florida coast and enjoy, finally get to enjoy the state a little bit. But what is next for Longy Media? Well, um, you may, as, as you know me well, Josh, I don't sit very long, and I and and actually I won't be sitting very long because pretty much as soon as I get back, I'm going to be executive producing the production for uh, for the CPD debates, uh, the first and the last one. So I'll be overseeing the pool production for the debate in the De in Denver on October 3rd, and then the last debate uh, in Boca Raton, Florida, uh, the end of October. Well, thanks, Phil. I mean, we talked with uh, Alan Schroeder, debate specialist, last week. I think we'll have Mike McCurry on from the CPD uh, in coming weeks. Um, that, you know, the, the Republicans get their, their moment in the sun this week. The Democrats get it next week. It's an opportunity using uh, working with people like Phil Alonji to, uh, to get a message out unfiltered if they get people watching C-SPAN or other direct feeds and a little bit less sort of the, uh, the talent-cluttered uh, coverage of the, the broadcast networks and the cable networks. But we'll get to what Phil's next role is going to be, doing the pool feed for presidential debates. This is 90 minutes of, of unscripted and high-risk TV where – where there is no intermediary, and it, it is the, probably the last moment that we'll have for, spontaneous, for spontaneity 
between President Barack Obama and Governor Mitt Romney. And while Phil played a role this week with uh, the Republicans in Tampa, he will also facilitate that incredible news event and maybe the, the, the event that more than anything else will determine the outcome of this election. Phil Longi, executive producer of the Republican National Convention, congratulations on a job well done and best of luck for what's ahead. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate it. Always good to speak to you, sir. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual. Think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.